Hi and hello, Watch Fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuds, and my co host, my illustrious co host, calling in all the way from Amsterdam, Alon Ben Joseph. Today, we are going to work our way through the very long list of questions that we've already assembled from our dear listeners. So, thank you very much for those, and please keep them coming. I'm going to toss this one over to Alon to start because I know that he's got a few things that he'd love to ask me. So, let's see where this conversation takes us. Hi, buddy. How are you this beautiful day? I am actually. Quite tired, but also exhilarated by something I learned this morning, something I never knew before, and it's changed my life. Which is? Did you know that the top shelf of dishwashers can be dropped down lower to accept like wine glasses or pint pots, for example? I had no idea. No idea. Saw it on Instagram Reels, went and tried it on my own dishwasher, and I just stood there for about 10 minutes marveling at this invention that I had I'd had in my life for years and just never realized. What a great day. <laughs> Well, I have to honestly admit that my dear wife loves Mila and she picks our dishwasher based on this mechanical marvel. So yes, I knew. And I love that fact that you can play around with your dishwasher. But hey, let's move on to the real cool mechanical uh, pieces of art. So I'm actually very honored and happy that we've received so many cool questions. Um, some of which that I would never come up with. And I personally do not know the Dutch collection. You've received many wonderful questions from him on Instagram. Yeah, they're kind of questions. They're also sort of um, statements. <laughs> he's, he's, a great, he's a great guy. He was always very supportive of my work that I did with Fratello and other media outlets. And I'm really thrilled to see that he's followed us over to the real time show. And uh, yeah, reading his his, uh, questions is sometimes like reading uh, a series of small haikus, but uh, this is going to be interesting. I can't wait to see what you've picked out from his long stream of questioning. So I I utterly love haikus. And with such a name, with Dutch in it, I obviously had to start off with him. So from his long list of haikus and statements, and maybe we'll (laughs) rephrase them, um, I love Patinas. I love patinas on my leather straps, my shoes, my belts. And although I'm not a huge fan of bronze watch cases, I utterly love my Tudor Black Bay 58 in sterling silver, where they said it wouldn't patinate. And I did not think that it was true. It does patinate, which I love. So his question is, or as his haiku states, 50 shades of faux patina and why 48 of them are absolutely meaningless. <laughs> so, I so I'm sorry, I'm chuckling, but it's funny. So if we would rephrase that question to something that we would like to answer, Rob, what do you think of patinas in general, dial and cases? Because he didn't specify where the patina should be on. That could also be leather watch straps. But what is your stance on patina in general? He specifies faux patina. And he states that 48 of the 70 are meaningless. So I assume that he thinks that some of them are meaningful. So I'll shut up and you get cracking. All right, so patina. Now, this is a nice topic to address because it is one that inspires great passion on both sides of the divide. The faux patina argument is one that I have, against my better judgment, perhaps barreled into on several occasions because I do have quite a strong feeling about it. And my feeling is that 
faux patina, the term, is incredibly damaging. It basically debases something that is just a color. So beige or off-white, ecru, eggshell white or something along those lines, it's just a color. It's just a, something a designer could choose from a color swatch to accentuate other colors in the watch or to give a certain rustic feel. Also, it can be used to create a new version of a watch that never existed before out of the box, but then came about because of age, showing everybody how wonderful that color combination could be. So just let me draw a, a specific example to that. If you search, if you go on Google and you search for Rolex Submariner Ghost Bezel, for example, you will see a load of old, really beaten up Rolexes that originally would have had flat black dials, white numerals, uh, white, white indices, and a bright black bezel, anodized aluminium, almost certainly, from this generation of watches that I'm talking about. When that watch has been worn and used and clattered around for years, Obviously, the colors are going to change. The black bezels have faded to gray, sometimes even all the way to steel with the numbers only just visible. This is why they're called ghost bezels, because they look like a spectral form of their former selves. And the indices, the markings on the dial, have aged due to UV exposure. And in some cases, you get this incredible natural patina, this rich pumpkin shade, which nobody in their right mind would ever have thought to put on a watch when it was made in the 1950s or 60s or 70s, because it just wasn't the style. But now you look at it and you're like, oh, you know what? Imagine if we could take all of the majesty of the Rolex Submariner, but bring it to life using modern manufacturing techniques and modern materials, and yet we could create the same aesthetic effect. So you could take, for example, a ceramic bezel insert from Rolex. Now you could do it in an almost steel-colored gray. And you could put that on a brand new watch. It would never fade because it's a color fast material. And then you could take the dial and instead of putting white markers on it, you could put bright orange markers on it or brown markers on it or ecru markers on it right out of the gate. And that would create a beautiful aesthetic that honors something that only was able in the past to exist because of time. So I have no problem with that. I don't see it as insincere. I see it as design. And I think that it is crazy that some people, the faux patina brigade, want to ring fence a color like beige, which let's face it, has never been particularly offensive, and say, you can't use that because it looks like a white loom that's gone off. And I think, well, why Why can't you use it? Why? It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't, doesn't matter that it looks like something else. Like If you start taking that philosophy across all of watchmaking, you close so many doors on yourself for absolutely no good reason. So, I don't like the term faux patina. Uh, I prefer faux rad, I guess, or faux radium, because it's the old radium loom that tends to go this really beautiful, creamy, or dark brown, or bright orange color. And it's okay to be faux radium, because radium is a bad thing, because it's deadly. So, that's fine. But the faux patina thing, no, I'm not, I'm not in agreement with the people that think that you should just um, have white numerals, or blue numerals or green numerals or whatever the hell it is as long as it isn't beige or brown or whatever so i'm not in agreement with that when it comes to natural patina god considering this wasn't even a question 
and he just made a statement. We've re- I've really like gone to town on it. Um, sorry about this, but natural patina. It can work, but I do not like it. I'm not a vintage watch fanatic. I have a few vintage watches in my collection that I have bought because of their design codes, but not because of their condition. It actually annoys me intensely when things aren't perfect. Now, that's not to say that I'm delicate with my watches. I absolutely ruin them by wearing them every day in every kind of situation. I do take them off for a shower, of course, because I'm not a maniac. But for example, I put on my new Nomos site the other day, the special edition we just did with Fratello. And I went round to my mate's house and I was washing my hands in the bathroom. And then for some reason, I just sort of flung my arms out to the side. I don't know what I was doing. I have some minor celebration of my clean hands. And I whacked the watch, lug and bezel on the side of his shower, put a right nasty scratch in it immediately. It was basically the first day that I'd worn it. And in the old days, the very first time I scratched a watch, I would have cried myself to sleep over it probably. But now, having had so many watches and having duffed them all up, I just laughed and smiled and thought, oh, welcome to the family, buddy. You know, it's good to have you on my wrist. And also, I have this, I have this thing, this mantra that I say to myself. I say it about all sorts of things, not just watches. I say, anything that can be made can be remade. So there isn't enough damage you can do to something that would prevent it from being repaired or replaced or remade in some way. So look, I'm looking at my watch and I've, you know, I can only see this scratch when I hold it at a certain angle. And I think, okay, that's, uh, that's fine because if I do send it in for service, I can easily get those things polished out. However, as with patina on the dial, as with aging loom, as with cracked paint and flaking hands, there is something weirdly charming about the patina of life. Or what is it the Japanese call it? The grease of life, I think they call like patina, when it builds up on metals in particular, like bronze or brass. And they love it. They leave it there. They leave it and they celebrate it because it is uh, something to be treasured. The experiences that this watch or whatever item it is that we're talking about has gone through by your side. So I can totally understand the emotional connection people have to their own watches that have patinaed, aged, scratched, been damaged while on their own wrists, as I share that sentiment myself. I personally do not lust over someone else's patina, so I don't go after these vintage watches with crazy burnt-out numerals just because they are cool, because that's not my personal preference. And when it comes to replicating the look of something old but new, I'm all for it as long as it's done tastefully and for a good reason. All right, there you go. Okay, that's that's probably my my uh, bit for the show done. I'm going to go have a lie down in the dark room. Thank you. And I think that I can wake up again. Thank you for the monologue, Rob. You're very welcome. I do love a good monologue. For those that are very new to the art of collecting wristwatches, Rob, can you quickly give a explanation slash definition of patina? What faux patina means? Because... Um, we know maybe from the fashion industry, faux fur, which is fake fur. So this refers to man-made patina. And you focus very much on just the dial. So can you just give a quick definition of patina, faux patina? And don't make it a monologue, but please give us your view on the patina of cases, please. Okay. Patina 
basically is the name given to the visible effects of aging caused by physical impact, exposure to certain environments, certain lights, over time. Faux patina is the attempt to replicate those aging effects right out of the gate. So, for an example, you might have heard the term tropical dial. This is generally a formerly black dial that, due to UV exposure, has been burnt out to a crisp and become an almost tobacco shade. Now, in the past, this was not seen as a desirable effect because the idea of an old watch, I don't think, really held much sway in the days before the quartz crisis, before luxury watch collecting really became a thing. But now, because these old dials that have been burnt out through natural exposure have become so collectible and so desirable because they have lived a life that can't be replicated, some manufacturers have decided to create this effect from new. Now, some people love it because it allows more of the watchmaking community to buy into a certain aesthetic that previously would have not been available to them. And I'm in support of that as well, I think, myself. Because if you don't like a watch, you don't have to buy it. So I think that you know, if someone wants to make a watch that somebody else wants to buy, you should respect that and be happy for them. Some people really hate it because they see it as, well, fake. So that's uh, roughly, I think, what patina and faux patina is. And to answer your question about case patinas, so the most obvious one is bronze. You've got the Tudor... Black Bay 925 in silver, right, as well. I don't have a silver watch. I do have two bronze watches. I have a Laventure Submarine, black dial bronze case, and I have the Schofield B4, which has been force patinated. So that is incredibly dark. It has this beautiful, almost purplish bloom on the case. And that, that watch isn't really going to patinate more. It'll probably patinate less because as I handle it, the edges will be worn down and the original bronze will shine through and it'll have this lovely sort of outline effect after I've worn it more and more and more. When I got the Laventure Sumerine, I thought I wasn't going to like the aging process. I loved it when it was brand new. It looked like bling bling rose gold. It didn't look like bronze at all. It was C-U-S-N-8 bronze, I think. It had this really nice reddish tone and I loved it. I simply thought it was the coolest thing ever, the best combination, the black dial, the flat black dial, the first, in fact, only flat black dial Laventure has ever done in the bronze case was just mind-blowingly gorgeous. And then it got old. And fortuitously, it aged very evenly because patina, it's a bit of a roll of a dice. You don't know exactly what you're going to get. Mine went a really muddy green, not like with bronze disease growing on it. Okay, so there's another thing. Okay, I'm sorry this is turning into a monologue, but when it comes to bronze cases, verdigris and bronze disease are two different things. Okay, so when bronze naturally patinates to a sort of greenish color, it's not a bad thing. It's actually protecting the bronze beneath. It's like when we blew a screw, for example, to protect the steel from rust. Same thing with bronze. However, the sort of furry green growths that you get on bronze are dangerous for the material and will eat away at it. That's bronze disease. It's different from verdigris. So do a little bit of reading on that if you're going to buy a bronze case. Anyway, mine aged really consistently, really nicely. It went this sort of dull, muddy green color. 
and I loved it. But then, bright spark that I am, I decided one day I'd do a little bit of experimentation. And so I took a load of lemon juice and bicarbonate soda to the case and cleaned it up. And I hated it. It, it. it went back to how it was when I got it, which was lovely. But then I missed I missed the patination that I'd spent a year and a half unwittingly adding to the watch. And so I have not cleaned it again since. I've left it as it is. And it's it's actually p- patinaed in a different way now. And I don't like it as much as I did the first time, which is another lesson to me to never mess around with the natural process of aging. So I love it. I think you need to know what you're getting yourself in for when you buy a case that is likely to patina, whether it be bronze or silver or otherwise. But if you're into that, go for it because the relationship that you will build with that watch as it changes over time is very satisfying. Give us your take on it. I've already gave away a bit of my answer. I love patina. Um, I love when things age. I'm, I take the same stance as you do about scratches. Um, as a kid, obviously, with sneakers, I would also put myself quietly to bed when my uh, dear Air Jordan 1 would scratch. And that also happened to my uh, watches. But today, I, I exactly think the same. Ah, finally, the first scratch. It's worn in. It gives character to your watch, right? I always use the metaphor when we ourselves have a wound or a scar. It tells a story. Um, and it, it shapes and forms who you are and underlines your identity. And it becomes yours. So I, I guess they're very limited quantity of watches that are truly unique and as the swiss call it pièce unique so with that i won't call it mass production per se so wearing the watch and scratching it it makes yours and therefore i love patinas because every patina as you said turns out differently Uh, uh, the first and foremost uh, uh, cause of the particular shade of color and patina on the outside for sure, comes from your pH values, the acidity that comes off your skin. Do you swim with it or not? Sea salt, uh, chlorine in swimming pools. Do you rinse it? Don't you rinse it? And and I wanted to ask you if you reset patina on cases. Well, you gave the answer. You tried it once. You didn't like it. Me neither. I don't reset it. I love also when straps, uh, my, my favorite color is golden honey brown or Hermes tan brown because they become very dark at the end of their life cycle. So you see gradually that it's coming to its end. Regarding dials, indices, uh, numerals, it became a thing, I guess, 15 years ago that tropical dials became sexy, whereas before, Nobody wanted them, right? I do love them. I have several vintage watches where I had them restored to the original state. A lot of people think that I'm crazy, but sometimes you don't have a choice. I mean, when whatever luminous material falls out of your hands, what can I do? It needs new hands, right? So, c'est la vie. Um, and I like your statement, actually, that you said everything that has been made can be remade. Um, and that's also amazing that indeed in watches or old clocks, you can remake everything. So I'm not in that 
school of collectors that are anti-polishing of cases and that you can't touch anything, that you can't restore dials or hands or whatever. That being said, I don't mind faux patina. So when a retro or retro-inspired or vintage-inspired watch gets relaunched by watch brands, they opt for obviously fake. And as you said, often the color is, colors are fixed. And it's designed, as you said, I don't mind it. You eloquently said you shouldn't fence it off. And I agree with you 100%. That's it. Well, that's that's refreshing. I'm glad to hear. <laughs> You're glad to hear that we concur on something, or yeah, it's nice. It's, uh, <laughs> it makes you feel warm and safe. Fantastic. Well, I hope that that addressed Dutch's question or whatever the hell it was, his statement. And we've got a load of them to work through as well. We won't do them all today. We might come back and do one more later on in the show. But uh, thankfully, he like our most dedicated listeners, has gifted us with some wonderful topics to discuss. If you want to get involved in that, then please get in touch with either Alon or I via Instagram, or you can send us an email directly if you don't want to post something publicly. And we will try and feature every question we're asked on the show at some point. All right, I've got one for you, mate. This is um, very relevant because I know who it comes from. It comes from my mate Lee Evans, one of the co-founders of Red Bar Manchester. He works in luxury retail, so he's a man after your own heart. The question I have from Lee is, with COVID being responsible for an increase in luxury watch sales and creating a demand like never before, and he means the industry as a whole, not just Rolex and Patek, etc., we are seeing a lot of delays in production and distribution. When do you think things will normalize and will be able to satisfy the demand? Thank you, Lee, for your question. Very good question. I hope to meet you in person. Oh, you don't want to meet him. He's he's a nightmare. He's awful. He's uh yeah, very handsy. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. As long as he's handsy with my watches that I bring to the red bar crew. He's a good kisser though. Um <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. So to summarize the question, when will things normalize a bit more? Although we in the Netherlands or in Europe don't feel that things are really cooling down. Maybe on the second-hand market, you'll see that the, 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 the Holy Trinity, and we had, that's a separate discussion, what and who belongs to the Holy Trinity. And I think we should touch upon that topic as well, Rob, but that's for another day. Um, these utterly crazy prizes are coming down, but it's still very high. Taking it all over the board, what we see in retail still, a lot of waiting list models on almost every brand. Even the, the heroes of, let's call it the mid-segment, the Longines of this world, the Nomuses of this world, etc. They have a multiple model still waiting lists. And that is caused by supply chain problems that were caused due to COVID, but also the surge in demand. So it's, it's um, a two-way problem. I don't see demand cooling down. Obviously, during COVID times, governments held spending up. I don't know if every government in the world, or actually Europe, has an energy crisis on their hands. 
the Dutch government decided to curb that exponential growth in energy prices. That will cause people, obviously, to still keep their spending up. Um, there's a lot going on in the world, especially in Europe. Um, I think there's a perfect storm brewing. Um, it's sad for all those people suffering. Taking a geopolitical macro view of things, it is a good thing to cool down markets. So I think that in two years from now, hopefully we won't have wars on our hands anymore. That, that will normalize things. If COVID doesn't uh, come back with a vengeance and supply chain normalizes, that will reduce waiting lists. You know, this is an interesting question because the answer, you know, based on what you said, your takeaways from the purchasing patterns of people through COVID and the fact that it's apparently not slowing down would suggest, of course, that things will never normalize, that if demand remains this high, will the industry ever be able to catch up with itself? What happened in addition to people going spending crazy throughout the COVID lockdown periods was that it gave brands a little bit more of a chance to internalize manufacture and to streamline their supply chains. Now, not every brand did this as effectively as every other brand, and not every brand made it their prime goal during that slightly easier going period, shall we say, when it comes to travel and activities, no fares, no no international actions needed to be undertaken at that time. So we're seeing now more and more brands placing an incredible stock in being able to control the process from A to Z. And I think that's only a good thing for the watchmaking industry, but I think it's a long journey for us all to walk together. And I would say, yeah, let's say a couple of years will probably be how long it takes before the supply chains are either refined enough to deal with the demand or catch up with the demand as it is today. Thanks, Lee. That was a good question. For those that are, again, less familiar with the watch industry, it's very important to know that it's very difficult for them to scale up. They can't, by a push of a button, scale up production for multiple reasons. Lack of watchmakers, lack of spare parts, materials. Um, there's so many actors and factors and players and suppliers that only do a little piece for the watch that it's very difficult to scale up and a lot of people don't know that rob i have a very nice question for you as you are a watchmaker or you claim to be a watchmaker well i am a watchmaker i don't claim to be a watchmaker <laughs> i have like a certificate and qualifications and uh the scars on my hands to prove it what do you mean i claim to be a watchmaker do you mean because i don't like i just don't like whip off everybody's watch the minute i see them and take it to pieces on the on the table it's because i'm not mental i'm a watchmaker i'm just not crazy i've never seen you held a burger and a screwdriver well i've got one in my hand right now i like I, i'm surrounded by bergeron tools i've got a whole big pile of them right here what are you doing scraping off patina off your cases no i'm just i'm, I'm sort of spin, i'm spinning the top of the screw you know the screwdrivers have got the nice little spinny yeah i love that them. yeah the fidgety parts I'm fidgeting with my screwdrivers, yeah. Yeah, I know, I know that. And I'm not the Scandalous thing to say. Uh, Unbelievable. I mean, it's in, the, it's in the opening gambit. It's what I say. I'm the friendly neighborhood watchmaker. Spider-Man nod, by the way. Everyone got that, I'm sure. But that, <laughs> I mean, I'm your co-host. Like, you're supposed to be on my side. What's am, going on I here? Am, I am. Character some, some, some brotherly love. <laughs> oh, don't tell Lee. You'll love that. 
Yeah, he's very he's very hunky. Good. I like I like I like a bromance. Um, going back to Rocky, fan of the Watch oh, yeah. Four crew, and also part of the Amsterdam chapter of Red Bar crew, um, sent in actually a lot of cool questions on my Signal app. One that is very much so for you as a watchmaker. He asks, can you explain the advantages and disadvantages of higher and lower frequency? And he means in watch calibers. Is it correct that a higher VPH caliber also leads to higher power reserve, comma, better time precision, and is more resistant to shocks? Well, thank you, Rocky. Thank you for having the uh, respect to ask me this question, because I'm a watchmaker. Despite what my co-host seems to be trying to peddle. Um, shocking behavior. This is a great question, and it's one of my favorite questions. And it is a question that I have addressed many times before in my career, not just at the bench, but more often than that when I was traveling around the world for Nomos as their key account manager for several markets and i would explain to people why nomos watches operated at a 21,600 vph that's vibrations per hour frequency instead of what is now seen as a relatively standard 28,800 vph so the operating frequency of a watch relates to the speed at which the regulating organ which in this case is the balance wheel and hairspring moves every hour now, there are advantages and disadvantages to both higher and lower frequencies, and Rocky has done pretty well in framing this question in a way that gives me a chance to address those points one by one. He says, is it correct that a higher VPH also leads to higher power reserve, better time precision, and is more resistant to shocks? Let's go backwards through that. The watch is better able to maintain consistent timekeeping through the experience of shocks. So when a watch is subjected to a shock, what will likely happen is all of the components will rattle around slightly and the oscillation of the balance wheel and hairspring will be somewhat disrupted. It will wobble and it will take a while to recover and get back to its regular path. Now, a higher frequency movement has much more power being pushed through the escapement at any one time. It needs to be higher power so it needs a stronger mainspring or at least it needs to be automatic so that its mainspring remains fully wound as often as possible so it can drive the wheels at this increased rate. Now that extra power is useful when the movement experiences a shock because it allows the escapement to recover a lot quicker than it would do if there was very little power limping through it. The analogy I always use is imagine you're an American football running back, or if you are on England's side of the pond, a rugby player, a winger, for example, and you've got the ball and you're running towards a defender. The faster you're running at that defender and the harder you hit them, so the more power that you put into your forward motion, the more likely you are to be able to absorb their shock, that impact, and continue running past them down the field. If you amble up to them very slowly and you just flop into them, they will obviously overpower you put you on your ass, and then you will take a while to recover. In this analogy, you are the balance wheel, and the speed at which you're traveling is the power that you're receiving from the mainspring. So the more power behind you, the more likely you are to ride out a shock and recover from it thereafter. So yeah, it doesn't make it more shock resistant in as it won't experience the shock, but it will recover 
from the shock better. So in that sense, it is more shock resistant. Therefore, it is likely to have better time precision during general wear, although it is worth pointing out that when at rest and when under no duress whatsoever, there is really no difference between high frequency and low frequency in terms of precision. That comes down to the skill of your watchmaker. You can easily tune an 18,000 VPH caliber to keep chronometric level precision while it is at rest. So that's the first two points addressed. Now to the third one, or the first as he made it in that order, no, the exact opposite is true. Having a higher VPH tends to lead to a lower power reserve because you're consuming more power. You will often find that high frequency movements, for example, the Zenith El Primero caliber, which is a 36,000 train count, have automatic winding weights to ensure that they are as highly powered and well-fueled as possible. If you have a small caliber, a slimline caliber, for example, and let's use Nomos as an example here, if you have a very thin caliber, then lowering your VPH and thus reducing the need for a big bulky mainspring so you can have a thinner and more gracile mainspring in its barrel is advantageous because that way you will reduce the power consumption and extend your power reserve. So low frequency helps increase a power reserve. High frequency will reduce it, but comes with other precision benefits. And also it looks really cool. So you know when the second hand sweeps on the dial? None of these watches that we're discussing, these mechanical watches, actually have a true sweeping second hand. The only watch type that I know of in the world that has a true sweep is the Grand Seiko Spring Drive Caliber. And that's because that hand literally does not step. It is uh, controlled by magnetic brakes uh, on a flywheel. So it just it does just glide around the dial. Some people think that the Belova high-frequency quartz movement sweeps. It doesn't. It just steps about 16 times a second. In the case of a 28,800 VPH caliber, the seconds hand is stepping eight times per second. In the case of a 36,000 VPH caliber, the seconds hand is stepping 10 times per second, otherwise known as a five hertz movement. That is aesthetically very satisfying to see. And I would contend that you may not be able to notice the stuttering step of a 18,000 train count seconds hand with your naked eye. But I, I do think you would get a sense of how perfect the sweep is when the frequency is higher. So it's only an advantage, I would say. You go up, you get this nicer aesthetic on the seconds hand sweep, and you, can, you just sort of feel like there's a very high quality aspect to that movement. So yeah, I hope that answers the question. I personally would take high frequency movements in wristwatches that I was wearing for sports especially, but I don't think unless you are the kind of collector that likes to time your watches on a timing machine regularly, that you would notice a huge amount of difference, even if you had an 18,000 or 21,600 train camp. Ta-da! Thank you for that, Rob. Amazing. I believe you now that you're a watchmaker because you sounded as if you know what you're doing and saying. That's the key. You just got to sound like you know what you're doing. <laughs> no, all kidding aside. Uh, that was actually wonderful, and I really enjoyed listening to you, although I knew everything you told me. Also, when you were my account manager for Nomos, you've also told me this story. Just, I want to summarize very quickly and add a question. For those that are not that very familiar 
what Rob was saying and what Rocky asked. VPH, vibrations per hour, are the same thing as Hertz, beats per hour, BPH, or train count. Rob used all of them. So to summarize, back in the day, clocks, pocket watches were beating at a slow VPH. The majority of watch calibers, modern watch calibers today, are either beating at 3 hertz or 21,600 VPH, which is one-sixth of a second. Then the majority of, especially chronographs, are at 28,800, which is 4 hertz, one-fifth of a second. And then Rob mentioned the, the ultimate 10, one-tenth of a second watch, the 5 hertz which is the El Primero by Zenith, 36,000 beats per hour or vibrations per hour. Now, here comes my question for you, Rob. Although Zenith was not the first to produce calibers that beat at one-tenth of a second, they were, they say, the first chronograph in 1969 that was an automatic chronograph. They differ from the collaboration between Hoyer, Breitling, and the rest of the consortium that also launched that year an automatic chronograph because the Zenit was an integrated caliber. But the difference is also the Zenit was beating at 36,000, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. For a long time, they were the only ones. A lot of people and collectors know that for a long time, Rolex bought the Zenit El Primero caliber, but they screwed down the vibrations per hour, back down. A, why? And then B, my question is, since then, more producers started to make higher precision calibers, mostly chronographs. Why don't more brands do it, Rob? So two questions for you on this topic. Okay, to your first question, for some reason, I wasn't invited to the Rolex decision-making meeting. And if I had been, I probably would have said, don't mess around with the frequency at all. But as I said before, lowering the frequency can extend the power reserve, which to most people, I would say is actually more important. You know, I very, very rarely uh, care what my operating frequency is, and I'm a watchmaker. And if I don't care, why would most people care? I do care what my power reserve is, though, because having a healthy power reserve is not only convenient if you like to rotate through watches and you maybe want to lay one down for a day and pick it up a day later and not have to reset it and also the more generous your power reserve the more of a optimum operating window your watch is going to have for high precision timekeeping just to visualize it of course as your power runs down in your watch the timekeeping itself will suffer at a certain point so the longer the power reserve the, the longer you have good quality timekeeping on your wrist Second question, why don't more brands do it? Well, again, firstly, it's very expensive to develop calibers. To develop a chronograph caliber probably would take a couple of years as well. To take that plunge financially is risky and very much unnecessary for most brands that still really just design watches and slap movements inside them and sell them based on marketing campaigns rather than their technical prowess. Secondly, it's a balancing act. As I've intimated with the previous answers, you always have to trade off something in watchmaking. You can't have everything. I mean, that's kind of the goal. People are working constantly to try and make watches that do have everything. And we've seen in recent years, ultra high frequency calibers that 
oscillate at previously impossible rates thanks to the use of new dry cut silicon components. Dry, that's D-R-I-E, which is a type of deep reactive ion etching process, uh, which enables us to create incredibly complex components that can take the place of traditional hair springs and balance wheels and achieve unbelievable accuracy and consistency despite exposure to extreme environmental conditions. However, for the vast majority of watchmaking companies, those heights are unattainable, just quite simply out of reach. And so you have to balance what it is your consumer base most values versus the message you're trying to send and what you can do on a budget that will enable you to sell a watch at a price that people will be comfortable paying. So I would just say there's a huge amount of costs involved and the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Thank you for that. For our Dutch listeners, they probably spotted it. And fun fact for you, Rob, D-R-I-E means three in Dutch. Um, very interesting. It's interesting you touched upon the silicon escapements. Um, we've seen the inventor by Zenit that was in the end never produced. Um, Jenny Fleurier made an amazing movement. But I think we should do a whole episode on that. For those that are too young, before there was digital timekeeping in sports, it was very relevant that watchmakers amped up the frequency because then you can time more precise, right? So one-tenth of a second is a doubling of one-fifth of a second. Um, so that was an advantage, maybe less relevant today. The advantage, it's, it's, it seems smoother when it runs, as Rob explained. Um, I guess the disadvantage, Rob, you didn't, you actually said the opposite, guys. It's maybe better to absorb shocks. But I guess the movements are more delicate, right? So in, 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 in total use, um, you need to be a tiny bit more careful with a high-frequency watch. Do you concur? What makes you think that? Uh, practice. <laughs> they come back more often if I see a collector wearing a high-frequency chronograph versus, uh, let's say, an, uh, an, 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 an evergreen daily beater, uh, Valjoux 7750 they'll come back more often. It's an interesting point because you are right. I suppose the most obvious explanation for it is the fact that the components are just a little bit finer. Everything is a little bit smaller. Everything's a little bit more refined. So take, for example, a Unitas 6497 or 6498 movement, which is a very common, large, formerly pocket watch caliber that is used in some wristwatches these days it's got an 18,000 train count when you wind the crown the ratchet wheel sounds like a machine gun uh, being discharged it's basically the epitome of tractor movement mm -hmm. cannot be broken the teeth on that thing look like they come from a car engine rather than a caliber that's so robust and then if you look at an El Primero you're absolutely right the wheels are very thin uh, the teeth and the you know their engagement is is very very precise. Uh, everything has to be you know right down to the micron. I guess it makes sense. Yeah, you have to be a little more aware. Although I don't think you really need to be more careful with them per se. I just you know, I guess I guess you do need to be a little bit more careful with them. But I've not had huge problems that I would always directly attribute to it to the operating frequency itself. So don't panic. If you've got a 36,000 VPH caliber on your wrist, just don't panic. It's not like it's going to suddenly blow up or fall to pieces, but 
Yeah, maybe don't golf with it. Okay, bonus question. A question I get a lot, and I want to ask you as a watchmaker. Keep your chrono running or not? Um, Who could not enjoy this topic? A deep dive into the nuances of frequency and watchmaking. It's every watch fan's dream, I'm sure. Keep your chronograph running or not? Is uh, Does this also carry over to whether or not you should keep your watch on a watch winder or not? We could. I mean, it's the same kind of question, I suppose. Um, you know what? Do what you like. It's... Um, it's a personal preference. There, there are two sides to everything. Again, it's a balance. So on the one hand, if you keep the chrono running, there's going to be a drop-off in power reserve because it consumes more power. There's going to be a drop-off in accuracy of the timekeeping element of the watch, you would think, because activating the chronograph reduces the amplitude of the balance, which will knock it likely out of its optimum operating range you want the amplitude to be around 280 to 300 degrees the amplitude is the distance that the balance wheel travels from a point of rest to its maximum point of travel during a vibration and interestingly enough while we're talking about vibrations vibrations and oscillations are different an oscillation is actually two vibrations so a vibration is when the balance wheel travels from one point to the furthest point of travel and an oscillation is when it travels from one point to the furthest point of travel and then back again to that original starting point, which is why you get the discrepancy between the amount of ticks per second in a second's hand and hertz rating. So as NFL Primero ticks 10 times per second, and it's a five hertz caliber. That's a vibration and oscillation relationship going on there. I don't leave my chronographs running constantly, but I do activate them and deactivate them several times in a day because I like messing around with them. I think it's good to use it more often than not because otherwise the greases that you use in chronograph activation mechanisms, which tend to be quite heavy, can coagulate and they are pretty nasty when they dry out. So you don't want it to dry out at all. So a little bit of usage is a good idea. But yeah, if you leave it running, you'll experience more wear on the components. You'll need to have it serviced sooner. But I would say at least it's not going to jam up and cause bigger problems in the timekeeping component of the watch further down the line. So do what you like. I'd, I'd go for a mixture of both though myself. Amazing. Thank you, Rob. Oh, you're really hitting me with some watchmaking questions today. It's almost like this is a watchmaking podcast. This is cool. Yeah, it seems like we, we are talking about watches, right? And we know what we're doing. Wonders will never cease. Okay, right. Okay, I uh, have a question for you. This is from Jerome. Um, I'm guessing from that name, he's a Dutchman like yourself. And we love the Dutch on our program because we are half Dutch, which is a really great thing to be. Question, what countries after Switzerland are really watch countries? Good question. Jeroen, he's indeed Dutch and he sent me this question. Another Red Bar Crew member from Amsterdam. Geographically thinking, you would say Germany, but the first country that comes to mind is obviously Japan. In modern times, funnily enough, people don't know that the US and the UK, and I should say UK first, were maybe the most important countries in the history of watchmaking. And I'm proud to say that our little fair country, the Netherlands, had something to do with watchmaking with uh, Constantin Huygens, amongst several other important uh, researchers and academics. Um, but for me, first and foremost, is Japan and then Germany. But what I love is that we see watchmaking popping up 
in many countries, um, literally all over. Um, in Holland, we have now more than a dozen. So that's cool. But if we really look at, at, at manufacture from A to Z production, I obviously forgot China. Um, I would love to see more and more artisanal, high-end hotelogery from China. Um, but if we look at that beautiful watchmaking from A to Z, so designing calibers, making calibers, uh, making literally every component that is needed for a wristwatch, that's my top three. What would you add, Rob? All right. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the UK in your breakdown because it's really quite unfair how much the UK's esteemed history in watchmaking is forgotten these days. But there are companies doing their level best to re-establish Britain's reputation internationally in the watchmaking scene. First and foremost, of course, is Roger W. Smith on the Isle of Man. The apprentice of the late, great George Daniels, our era's finest watchmaker, I think, without a doubt. Smith and his small, very skilled team, which includes a couple of my former colleagues and very good friends. Uh, Shout out to Ed Ashby and Sean Morris. I'm hoping to come over to the Isle of Man soon to visit you both and also see Roger himself, who I did meet once at Salon QP and uh, was rather thrilled to shake the hand of a modern master. In addition to Smith and his peerless work, there are also a couple of companies that are doing great things in different facets of the watch industry in the UK. So we have one of my favorite brands that I already mentioned earlier on the show, that Schofield watch company down in Sussex run by Giles Ellis, one of the most interesting and engaging men in the watch industry. So he'll be a guest on the Real Time Show very soon. And I can't wait for you to hear that because he's always a fascinating listen. And then we also have to look, of course, to my old employers, Bremont, who, while not leading the charge in actual watchmaking for the majority of their existence, have firstly established an incredible storytelling reputation that has put them firmly on the map and done wonders for British watchmaking around the globe, for its visibility at least. But they've also now released their own proprietary caliber, the ENG 300, which as I understand it is a modular construction which can have all sorts of interesting dial side complications grafted onto it and should become their core caliber going forward. Some people have said to me, following the release of ENG 300, that it makes no difference to them and Bremont is no more or less appealing than it was before. And I cannot get my head around this because I have one Bremont and I have thought about buying other Bremonts in my life. My favorite one at the moment is, I think, the Descent 2, which is a steel case with a bronze bezel, I think, on a harbor blue rubber strap, which is gorgeous. But I want it to have the ENG 300 because that's a proprietary caliber that you can't get anywhere else. And more to the point, although it's a simple base caliber, when all is said and done, it looks amazing. Like The design is absolutely superb. And it's by far and away the most aesthetically beautiful movement they've ever made. And it's really on brand for Bremont. It looks top draw. I will buy one because it changes the brand entirely for me from an incredible storytelling marketeer brand. And they are, I think, possibly the greatest modern 
marketing company in watchmaking and the only one that really batters it around the car park as i like to say is rolex and you can't do anything about rolex rolex is rolex it's a phenomenon it's not a watch brand it's totally separate from every conversation you want to have about the industry bremont has basically written the book on how to start a brand from a complete standing start these boys giles and nick they had no real professional background in watchmaking their father was into clocks and taught them the basics of the mechanics when they were younger but they had a dream that they forced into existence with such an incredible weight of passion that even if you don't like the watches you can't help but like the guys behind the brand i think that's what i always felt i was always very proud to work for them i thought they were great ambassadors for british watchmaking and they continue to be and now they finally have a movement which is going to be affordable enough to get on the wrists of many Bremont lovers to hammer home the final chapter of their story. So I'm really thrilled for them. So England, the UK is right up there. Oh, talking, <laughs> talking of the UK. So we were just talking about England, but let's not forget Scotland and let's not forget Anne Ordain because Anne Ordain is one of the most exciting young companies in the watch industry and they have their USP which is the hand enamel dials and possibly some of the nicest typography in the entire watchmaking world if you don't know about anodain google it it's a n o r d a i n little scottish brand run by a very good friend of mine called lewis heath and he's got a wonderful team of talented craftspeople working for him up in glasgow so yeah, there you go. The British Isles is top stuff. We've got Roger Smith, we've got Giles Ellis of Schofield, we've got the English brothers of Bremont, and we've got Lewis up in Glasgow for Anodain. You can't go wrong with those four brands. Furthermore, I'm actually getting really into Scandinavian brands at the moment. Obviously, I have a professional association with Arkenorp in Copenhagen in Denmark. The Danes don't have a particularly rich history in watchmaking, and that's about to change. Neither did the Norwegians, but Straum, who I mentioned in a previous episode, I think, and Straum up in Norway as well, S-T-R-A-U-M. They're a great little brand doing wonderful things with design, very ambitious. Hopefully, Scandinavia will get a lot more attention in the coming years and be regarded as a watchmaking hotspot. But to Jerome's uh, question, the top of the list for me is a UK, Germany, and Japan. and. If I'm being honest, I think Germany is probably the one I think of first after Switzerland. Of course, I'm biased. I live there. I prefer German watchmaking to Swiss watchmaking. But that's, uh, that's not to say that it's not actually one of the major powerhouses in the industry. Amazing, Rob. I um, love all the brands you mentioned in the UK. I want all of them as a guest on our show, if they would grace us with their presence. Um, talking of which, Scandinavian. I love Scandinavian design. The Especially the Danish have a very strong signature DNA design. I'm happy they are marrying it now with their own tech, let's say, their own mechanics. Um, on topic of Bramont, disclaimer, I love what the English Brothers, that's their surname, the founders of Bremond are doing. Um, we represent them exclusively in the Netherlands for quite some time now. If I understood correctly, the ENG 300 caliber 
is originally a K1 base caliber designed by the Swiss company The Plus, spelled T-H-E and then a plus sign. And I, I believe they bought the IP for the caliber, which doesn't matter because it's all made in Henley on Thames in The Wing. Um, I congratulate these gentlemen and all of their teams because it's amazing. They had a clear-cut vision over two decades ago to make British watchmaking great again. Um, so yeah, super exciting. And 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 I mentioned the US briefly. Um, the one that stands out for me is JP Shapiro. I would love to have him on the show because it's interesting what he's doing there. But um, we hope we answered your question, Yeroun. Um, you've sent many more questions and we'll deal with them in future episodes. All right. I think we've got time for one more question before we wrap up this show, which has been a show of <laughs> ranting Robbie. That's what, um, that's what my podcasting buddies used to call me when I went on one of these like mad monologue tear ups. Apologies for that, but some great questions that really, really piqued my interest. So, you know. What can I say? I'm a passionate guy. I'm a passionate guy. So since you're so passionate, I want yeah. to ask you a question. And it's actually a perfect outro to this episode. All right. And since you and I don't take ourselves too serious, and we do want a bit of fun in every episode, Franziska Bücher. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what the hell is this? Emailed. Oh, she emailed us. I like to know why you, in brackets, Rob Nerds, are so good looking. How do you keep yourself in shape? I said, Francisca, I don't know if you need new glasses, but okay, Rob, take it away. Right. Okay. So my girlfriend has got a habit of like emailing and direct messaging my colleagues, uh, which I find quite disturbing, actually. She had this real weird relationship with uh, RJ from Fratello and Balage also. I mean, every every woman has a strange relationship with Balage, as in they're in love with him, because he's the Hungarian horntail and uh, terrifyingly sexy man. And my girlfriend has a strange relationship with him on the internet, and it seems now you've been added to that list as well, because this message has come from my dearly beloved. How am I? So, why is it? Why am I so good looking? I guess it's genetics, babe. Um, I don't know. Lots of plastic surgery and a diet of whiskey and cigarettes <laughs> since since a terrifyingly young age. And how do I keep myself in shape? Uh, by curling my watch collection on the regular. There you go. How'd you like that? Thank you, Fran. And I miss you too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is disgusting. Right, we're wrapping up the show. Forget about it. I've had enough of this. Please get in touch with us either via Instagram at Rob Nudds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or at Alon Ben Joseph, A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H, or drop either of us a direct email, unless you're my girlfriend, at either rob at therealtime.show or alon at therealtime.show. We will see you next time. Stay safe and keep on ticking. You bastard. <laughs> Was a good one, no?